Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. It's a joy to have you with us today. Thanks for joining us on this Oh, I'm On. Thanks for joining us on this Good Friday. Thanks also to those of you who are joining us online today. Um, today is a special day in our church here. It's called Good Friday. And it's an important time for us to pause and ask, why is it good? What happened today that makes the day good? Uh, we are storytellers in the Christian faith. Our um, main thing we talk about is the gospel, which comes from some lovely words uh, meaning good news or a good spiel, someone who has a good story to tell. And so we get to tell this story every year, and we don't get tired of it. So let me tell you this story again, beginning with reading it from the Gospel of Mark, the events of today. Uh, Mark chapter 15, verses 16 to 39. It'll be on the screen behind me. The soldiers took him, Jesus, away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and they called together the whole Roman cohort. They dressed him up in purple, and after twisting a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to acclaim him, Hail, King of the Jews! They kept beating his head with a reed and spitting on him, and kneeling and bowing before him. After they had mocked him, they took the purple robe off him and put his own garments on him, and they led him out to crucify him. They pressed into service a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. Then they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each man should take. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. And scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with transgressors. Those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, ha, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves and saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. When the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour, and at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, Behold, he's calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge of sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it him a drink, saying, Let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion, who was standing right in front of him, saw the way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Um, this is a story we get to tell ourselves. Um, and I want to review some of the pieces, but I'll, I'll let you know a few things first. We've got a time for me to talk to you about what happened on this day. Um, at the end of time, we'll have at the end of that time, we'll have some time for some reflective prayer uh, to sit and quiet our hearts. In the meantime, some of you are here with your families, and children make noise, and that's okay. Okay, that's okay. Life is good, and uh, noises are good in this way, and don't feel bad about that stuff. 
Okay, we'll do our best to stay on top of it, the rest of us. So let's talk about the story of Jesus. Jesus shows up. Uh, he makes a splash. People want to be around him. He preaches about this thing called the kingdom of God that is coming. Repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. He heals the sick. He raises the dead to life. He travels around preaching sermons. He's a guy people want to be around unless you're in power, and then you get nervous because he doesn't always say good things. He calls 12 disciples. They come to follow him. He comes into serious conflict with the religious establishment of the day because the way he does things threatens the way they want to do things. There are power issues. There's concerns about who he is. Is he a Messiah? Is he coming as a conquering king to rule the world from Rome? Or is he doing something a little bit different? They've got certain expectations about who God is and how he ought to behave for them. In the last week of Jesus' life, uh, his earthly life in this time, uh, he shows up in Jerusalem. We could go Sunday, Passover week. He clears the temple shows up with whips and reeds and kicks people out. He preaches provocative sermons that make people really angry at him. And the Jews begin to conspire with the Roman authorities to get rid of him. We've got to do something about this guy. Thursday night of this week, the night before, Jesus eats a final meal with his disciples. You know it's called the Last Supper, right? He has this meal with his disciples. He gives them bread and wine. He says, this is now my body and blood. They're understandably a little confused by this. And they receive it nevertheless, and they move on. Because he's so popular, however, the Romans have to grab him at night. Because if they do it during the daytime, there'll be a riot. They'll revolt. And so they need something. They need insider help, and they find it in one of the twelve. His name is Judas. He says, all right, I'll do this. I'll betray my Lord, um, and I'll do it for money. And he takes some money to do this. They're at a garden called the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is praying with his disciples. They're unable to stay awake with him. He feels a little let down by their incapacities, but he's still merciful. And the group shows up, this crowd with torches at night, along with uh, Judas, and Jesus is betrayed. Why do they need Jesus? Why do they need it? Well, we're used to a world full of light. This is a world that's quite dark. There aren't torches. How do you identify someone in the dark? You've got to have somebody who knows the guy. And Judas could identify Jesus in the dark. That's why he betrays him with a kiss. The one I kiss is the one. Okay. And Jesus knows Judas, so he'll let Judas get close. There's a series of kangaroo courts. Jesus is hauled before courts that don't really have a lot of authority, but they've got a lot of bluster, and they want Jesus dead. They go to the high priest, they go to Pilate, they go back to other people. Jesus is jigged around from face to face. And finally, in front of Pilate, the crowd is kind of hungry for blood, Pilate says, hey, there's nothing wrong with this guy. Should I let him go? And they get worked up to shout, crucify him. Crucify him. We want blood today. If you've ever seen a mob in action, then you know exactly what's going on here. Jesus is condemned under Roman law as a uh, rebel, as a political brigand. And he receives the criminal crime of brigandage, which is crucifixion. Uh, crucifixion was a very public way of dying. Uh, we've, uh, crosses are kind of nice for us, aren't they? We wear them as jewelry. Some of you may have earring crosses on right now. It's a bit like wearing an electric chair on your ears. Okay? It's gruesome. We wear them around our neck, and it's nice, but it's a bit like having a noose around your neck. It's a method of brutal execution. And the electric chair and the noose are nicer than the cross. The Romans liked it as a public deterrent. They would line the roads with political insurgents so that as you walked to the Safeway to get your groceries, you'd look at the latest people who were murdered by the Romans walking down the road, and they'd leave them up for you to see them and be reminded, this could be you if you don't obey us. 
Crucifixion is a uniquely gruesome way of dying. It's public. It's meant to be public. You're meant to be viewed publicly. Uh, we have nice pictures of Jesus on the cross. He's usually got like a loincloth on. He looks kind of lyrical. You'd probably be naked, so they'd just shame you publicly. It's deeply embarrassing. And the way you die is you don't give out because you lose blood or because you get tired. It makes you suffocate. They found, they, not many people have been found who were crucified. The Romans crucified thousands and thousands of people. Um, I'm not sure what you know about this, but you know the bones in your hand aren't enough to hold your body up. And the Romans knew this because they had trial and error. And so they'd shove the nails between the bones of your arm, arm bones, before your wrist, because that was enough to hold your body. And they didn't go through the tops of your feet, which is the nice kind of pictures we see sometimes. They would turn you sideways and go through your ankles because that will hold your body. And what happens is, is that in order to breathe and to continue to breathe, you have to press against the nails in your feet and the nails in your hands to press yourself up to breathe. And what it makes you do is give up. You die from exhaustion and suffocation. It's a horrible means of death. And the Romans used it liberally. And they do this to Jesus. Jesus is caught. He's crucified. Every single one of his disciples but one abandons him. All of his friends, the people he's invested in, the people he's loved, just turn tail and run. John's the only one who seems to be staying around. He's on the cross for about six hours. The times we get in Mark looks like about 9 a.m. till about 3 p.m. in the day. Um, it says at about noon hour, there's some supernatural darkness that comes across the land. Sometimes people said things like, well, maybe it was an eclipse, uh, but the festival of Passover happens after the, um, after the sorry, I'm going to get this wrong, happens after the new moon and you have to have an eclipse at a full moon. Some scientists correct me. Anyway, whatever it is, it's impossible. Okay? The, timing, the timing doesn't work out. You may not have an eclipse at this time. It's a supernatural darkness. Something strange and unusual is happening. And Jesus gets to the spot. There's a loud cry and he dies. He dies. He's taken down from the cross. He's buried in a nearby rock tomb. And his disciples, who've all abandoned him, look on in shock. Because their Lord, the one they thought was going to come and be king and take over, is just dead. And they know what death looks like. They've seen it on a thousand Roman crosses in their lives. They know how final this is. It's a point of great despair. This is a terrible story, a tragic story, and it's also an unremarkable story. Romans kill meaningless Jew does not make headlines in the Roman world because they killed thousands of people. There's nothing remarkable about the story unless something else has come on. Why is this crucifixion different? And what could possibly be good about the events that we commemorate on this Good Friday? What could be good about this? I'm going to show you a couple of scriptures right now. One is from the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul writes these words, He, God, made him Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5, But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. Something that happened to Jesus has been done for our sake and done for us. 
Somehow the events of this crucifixion, this gruesome event, make things right between us and God. And somehow the death of Jesus on Good Friday makes it possible for us to have a relationship with God. Somehow. And that somehow is what I want to talk about for a few minutes right now. In the big theology class, if you're going to take the class, this is called atonement theology. Atonement is a big fancy word for making things right. How do you make things right? And what we're saying in this is that the work of Christ did something to make things right between us and God. Before I go on, I want to say that good atonement theology should make this event illuminated. It should brighten it for us. It should make it fresh. Bad theology is going to explain it away. And if you come away saying, oh, I fully understand what's happened today, then I failed you utterly. There is something holy and mysterious and powerful that we won't get to the center of because it's bigger than us. But we can illuminate it. We can come at it from some angles. And I'm going to give you four metaphors from the Bible on what we're talking about, this making right between us and God. I'm not making any of these metaphors up. I've made any of these up. These all come right out of our Bible. Four ways from the Bible we can talk about what Christ did on Good Friday. So let me give you the first metaphor. The first metaphor is it was a sacrifice. It was a sacrifice. Uh, In the book of 1 John uh, 4, uh, John writes this, In this is love. This is how we know love. Not that we loved God, but that God loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation is a big fancy word. It just means the wiping away right? There's something wrong between us. Uh, Maybe we're sitting at a table and you spilled your milk because you're a clumsy sod and I was mad at you, right? And someone else walked up and took a rag and wiped it away and said, there, it's all gone. Propitiation. I took care of it. It's gone. Uh, But what we have in the Old Testament is blood sacrifice being the event that wipes it away. Some need for blood sacrifice. Let me show you Leviticus chapter 17 and 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. Now, uh, this is complex, but in the ancient world, innocent blood was required to make up for wrongs. Because you did wrong in a certain way, you deserve to die. That's, you did something very wrong and now you deserve to die, but rather than kill you as you rightly deserve, we'll use the animal's blood as a surrogate for yours. It's a replacement, okay? It's just, it's exactly like Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark. He's holding the sand and there's the idol and there's a replacement. Okay, it's not exactly like that, but I hope you're, okay. All sacrifice involves a symbolic surrogate replacement, blood for blood, but not not my blood. Now, if you are feeling at this moment bad for the innocent animals, if you're like, but the animals are innocent, that's exactly the point. The animals are innocent. They haven't done the wrong. That's why their blood is suitable. You are not innocent. This is why some people like their dogs more than they like their neighbors. Okay? The dog's not morally culpable but your neighbor is, and guess what? You are too. Okay? So. But this was never enough. This replacement blood was never enough. It was always a stopgap. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 3 and 4. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It held things away. It was a stopgap. It was temporary, but it didn't solve the problem. Something else was recovered. Re, uh, something else was required, excuse me. 
So, in this sacrificial system of the Hebrew Bible, Christ appears as the last sacrifice. The sacrifice to end all sacrifices. And because he's perfect and he has no sin, he can offer his blood willingly in a way that far exceeds any animal that has ever offered before. In fact, his self-sacrifice is so powerful, it has power to save the entire world. And Christ becomes a propitiation for sins. His perfect blood wipes away our sinfulness once and for all. It's powerful stuff. The willing offering of an innocent person. First metaphor, sacrifice. Second metaphor is economic or legal. Second metaphor, economic or legal. In this metaphor, Christ works a kind of transaction where his blood is a kind of currency that's used to purchase us. Let me show you some scriptures. Uh, Revelation chapter 5 and verse 9. Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You bought us. You paid the price. Uh, scriptures point to this where Jesus paid the price as well, and that price was the blood of Christ on the cross. Galatians 3, uh, verses 13 and 14. Christ redeemed, that's the word for buying, redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Now, that word redeemed is like to be purchased as a mar- at a market. Jesus went to the market and bought you. And the image is almost like you were a slave at market. Okay, Slave markets were common in the ancient world. They're, they're regrettably not as uncommon in the modern world. And you're walking around and you've got people you can buy. They're in bondage. They're tied up. And he walks by and he says, yeah, I want you and I want you and I want you. And the purchase price was his own blood. He bought you. This metaphor is also tied to the Old Testament, especially to the language, the Old Testament's language of freeing slaves. Hey, if you've read your Bibles, you know a big portion of it is the Exodus. The Exodus is about slaves getting freed. It's really good news, right? You were in bondage and now you're free. Go. God's in the business of freeing slaves. That's what he does. And with his own blood, he purchased you so that you could be free. Atonement is a kind of contract where Christ uses his life to purchase ours from our debt of sin. He buys your freedom on the cross. Third metaphor is going to be punishment. Third metaphor is punishment. Uh, Humans have sinned both in Adam. We've got this story in Genesis about Adam committing a sin and he affects our race. But you know what? If you're honest, each and every one of us has done stuff too, haven't you? We don't have to go into the details at the moment. You've got stuff immediately you know you regret. You've got choices you've made that were against God's will. You are culpable for things, small and great, and you all know it. Uh, the book In Romans, Paul says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and this sin, this falling short, has consequences. Uh, Romans 6.23 identifies, for the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The wages of sin, the payment you get. You're going to get the check for that payment whether or not you want it. In fact, it's going to be direct deposited in your spiritual account whether or not you want it. The wages of your sin is death. You've got it. Sorry. But the gift of life, okay? Eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Sin results in punishment. Adam and Eve exiled from the garden. They don't have access to the tree of life. Sin results in punishment and death. But at the cross, Christ takes on himself 
the punishment that belonged to us. Christ dies so that we don't have to. 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin in our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. That may sound wordplay, but it's not. Him who knew no sin, Jesus who was perfect, became sin. He took on our punishment, took on our wickedness so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. He made a way. So there's an exchange. You've been found guilty. You are, in fact, guilty. And your punishment has been set. You're in the court right now. The judge says, I'm sorry, you're guilty. Uh, you've done these things, and it's a death sentence. Uh, to be commuted, not to be commuted, commuted, to be executed immediately, to effect it immediately. And Jesus walks into the room and says, actually, um, I'll take the death sentence on myself, and you can go free. That's the exchange. Now, you don't deserve that. You were guilty. You were found guilty, but he's taken your place. What are you going to do in response? And this is part of the punishment metaphor. This is also grounded in the Old Testament. The prophet Isaiah speaks to God's mysterious plan to punish one person so another person can live. Uh, Look at Isaiah with me, Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 through 6. Surely our griefs, listen to the back and forth between what I do and what he does. Surely our griefs he himself bore. And our sorrows he carried, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. We judged him as lost. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Think about this. This is written by Isaiah several hundred years before the birth of Christ. Who are you going to pick to volunteer for this role in the people of God? Right? Who do we pick in our church community to say, we've, we've chosen our scapegoat. It's Mark Peters. Mark, congratulations. We're going to be beating you this week so that we can live and You'll understand. Thank you for participating. God doesn't elect anybody like that in his people. He says, you know what? This is a high calling, and there's a high reward. I'm going to do it myself. I'll do it myself. Won't lay that saddle on any of you. I'll do it myself. It'll be done perfectly. It'll be done willingly. God offered himself in this way. It's remarkable. If the wages of sin is, uh, the wages of reward of sin is death, then Christ in dying pays the bill for us. Christ pays the bill. It's a bit like this. Some of you have been to a restaurant, you've worked up quite a bill. Your stomach, your eyes were bigger than your stomach and your pocketbook, right? You've ordered the lobster and the steak and a bottle of champagne. You've ordered three desserts and you said, I'll pay for everybody. And they bring you the tab and you think, I've made a mistake. You've received this massive bill, and you realize not only can I not pay it now, I could probably never pay this bill, and how am I going to get out of here? And it's not just that Jesus comes in and says, I've taken care of your bill. He says, I bought the restaurant. I've wiped it all away. So how do you live when your debts have been cleared? What do you do? Fourth metaphor, final one. Conquest. Conquest. 
In this, we recognize that Christ's willing death does something. It conquers something. It overcomes. Well, first, Christ conquers precisely where we failed. Uh, Adam and Eve had skirted their obedience to God. They chose a temporary good, their pleasure, over following God's commands. Satan restated that temptation to Jesus in that he offered him all the kingdoms of the world, right? You can have everything. You just have to uh, give me a little worship, and there won't be any pain involved. And Christ, in choosing obedience and rejecting Satan, meant that he chose death. And in choosing death, he conquered the temptation that brought us into our own fall. He says, obedience to God is worth more than my safety, which is something very few of us are comfortable with. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 through 10. In the days of his flesh, Jesus, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Christ in following the Father's will conquers our disobedience. His perfect will, his surrendered will, it rights the wrong of what's disordered and disright with us. And in the process, he also conquers the world, and then the flesh, and then the devil himself. And by living a perfect life and following God perfectly, by dying according to God's plan, he eviscerates the power of Satan. The cross in this respect is an image of pure victory over the power of the evil one. He didn't give in. He didn't give up. He held true to the very end. Everyone abandoned him. His own people rejected him. The world rejected him, but he stayed true to God till the very end. It's a victory because he conquered some places where we fail all the time. The metaphors of sacrifice, economic purchase, punishment, and conquest. All right, which metaphor is best? Take your pick. They're all. Each one comes from Scripture. Each one comes from both Old and New Testament alike. Each illuminates the mystery of Christ's work on Good Friday. None of them can replace or supplant the others. And in different seasons of your life, you're going to have to rely on different metaphors to draw close to the Lord. So in closing, I want to say a couple things. Jesus knew what he was doing. John chapter 10, verse 18 says this, No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. No one takes my life from me. I'm willing here. I'm doing this for you. I'm not, I'm not a victim of fate or kismet. No one drives me to this. I'm an obedient servant of the Father. And so what makes this a Good Friday? Because today we remember the fact that our sin, our brokenness, our failings, everything and anything that broke our relationship with God, on this day many years ago, Christ made a way through those things where there was no way. And he made it through his physical body, which was transformed into a willing sacrifice, which he used to purchase us, which received a punishment on our behalf, and through which he conquered death and the evil one. In Christ, judgment for sin passes over us, giving us new life. And that is some wonderful news indeed. Uh, we have three things to kind of close our time together. Uh, in a minute here, I'm going to lead us in just some time of reflective and responsive prayer. And we have a few minutes to sit and meditate in the Spirit of God on what He needs to do in our hearts. Um, and then, this is a bit unplanned, but I want us to sing one more song together before we go. 
I want us to sing Amazing Grace together today. Okay? And then at the very end, I'm going to ask you to leave um, in meditative quiet. Okay? So let's take some prayer time together, and then let's sing, and then we'll, um, and then we'll depart. So I invite you to take a posture of prayer. Um, you can bow your heads. You can close your eyes. Um, uh, I find sometimes it's helpful to have my hands open in front of me, or you can fold them. There's no secret. It's not like God hears you better if you sit a certain way or fold your hands a certain way. It's just what it does to your heart that matters more. So take a posture that's comfortable too. If you'd like to kneel, you're welcome to kneel. It's, it's, you're welcome to these places. Um, and take, uh, just take a deep breath, and in these moments, just quiet your heart from whatever is in it this morning. So I invite you a moment right now just to reflect upon the cross. Think about, think about death. For some of you, this will be very easy because you've had people in your life pass away in the last year who were very close to you. Reflect on this. You people you know who are close to you who are going to die very soon. You've been to the hospital this week and you know they're there. And from their deaths, reflect on your own death because you yourself will die. By God's grace, none of you today, but in the next months, years, and decades. shift to sacrifice. Reflect for a moment on sacrifice. Think about the power of one life for another. Think about what it means for someone who is undeserving and innocent paying for something that you have done. And think about what comes up in your heart. Is it a sense of fear? A sense of gratitude? sense of confusion reflect with me for a moment on this purchasing God has made a purchase offer for your life and he's paid the full price through the life of his son Jesus are you going to make the deal have made the deal, what does it mean that you are owned by God? Reflect with me on the metaphor of punishment, because you've done wrong, and things have been done wrong to you, or you're the victim. You deserve punishment for the things you've done and other people deserve punishment for the things they've done and the whole world is stuffed. And the cross represents that punishment for wrongdoing that someone has received on your behalf. If Christ has forgiven you your wrongdoing, 
How should you treat the person who hurts you? Reflect with me on conquest. Think about victory and power and trampling down death and how it is that the perfect obedience of Jesus defeated death. Death is no longer an enemy to be feared, but a trial to be endured. How does that change your fear? And lastly, I invite you to reflect on King Jesus. He who's highest in power, he who's majestic and holy and good, who offered his life in perfect submission and in weakness so that we could have life. sisters, let's sing together. Would you stand with me? I really did throw this at the team last minute. <laughs>